and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. And Vivian Cabrera. Good morning, good morning. How are y'all? Good morning. Very well. You know what I have been thinking about recently is that if there is any silver lining to the stay-at-home orders in the quarantining, it's that it happened to coincide with the advent of the golden age of TV and stream. <laughs> I mean, it would be a real bummer if we were all still watching the same 40 DVDs that we had in our oh basement. Oh my God. I mean, if they're all Disney movies, I'd be okay with that. But I do like the variety. I know. It's funny you say that. My I, This past weekend, I was go- uh, scrolling through Disney Plus, um, wanting to watch like a classic Disney movie that I probably do have on DVD <laughs> since I'm at my parents' house. And I landed on Emperor's New Groove, which I hadn't seen in like, you know, a good five years. <laughs> That is an all-time great one. Yeah. Um, Vivian, I, I thought this was apt because you are moderating America's Catholic Movie Club this week, correct? I am. For those of you who don't know, we do have a Catholic Movie Club on Facebook. Um, so I invite you all to join us there. But like Zach mentioned, we're watching uh, For Greater Glory, which is a movie that I personally um, love. But it's about the Mexican Cristero War, which was a war waged against faithful Catholics by the Mexican government. So maybe not like the best. It's not very happy because it is war. But um, I just really (laughs) like it because I think it like it shows a little bit about like why my family is Catholic because we're Mexican and this like they fought for the faith that I get to have now. Um, So I'm excited to talk about that with um, the members online. Have any of y'all seen it? I need to join the Catholic Movie Club. <laughs> I'm sorry to say I'm not actually a member Luke yet. can still movie. join. Well, not yet. Yeah. Um, have any of y'all seen it? I have not yet. So I'm still, I'm planning to watch it this week, but um, it's exciting. And if by the time people hear this, uh, we'll probably have moved on to a new movie because we're going every week. We're picking a new movie in this Facebook group. Um, so we've done a good variety. We, we did uh, True Confessions, which is like this crime noir Molokai about St. Damien of Molokai. Um, and now uh, uh, for greater glory. So um, wide variety and there's opportunities to jump in. We're trying to pick movies that are available on streaming platforms, but uh, you can rent anything for like three bucks now. Okay, so, so no Emperor's New Groove. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. we. It's, uh, it's TBD. TBD. Actually, if you could canonize one person from the Emperor's New Groove, who would it be and why? Oh, it's it's got to be Kronk. Mm. Kronk, because? Because he's just like... Um, not very smart, but he's really just like this innocent person who like when he doesn't get bossed around, his his instinct is to be kind and loving. Yeah, and he and he sort of represents the the holy fool of of Disney characters. Yeah. All right. Well, I think Saint Cron. Saint Cron. So anyway, Facebook group, uh America Catholic Movie Club. We'll see you there. But this week we're we have a great show lined up. We do. We are talking to J.D. Long Garcia. He's a senior editor at America whose coverage often focuses on um, immigration and the Latino Catholic community in the United States. Um, and on on the show for the past few weeks, we've been taking time to talk about um, communities that have been especially affected or vulnerable to um, the coronavirus or its economic impact, which is something JD has covered for America. So we thought we'd bring him on and take a deep 
deep dive into that. So welcome to Jesuitical, JD. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks so much for for joining us, JD. Um, We've mentioned on the podcast before, um, some of our listeners may know, that we talk about like communities that have been adversely affected by the coronavirus. And I'm wondering, to kind of get us started, is is can you bring us up to speed with what's been happening, uh, specifically to like the immigrant community? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's it's complicated. You know, everybody's been affected by uh, COVID-19 in some way. So for the immigrants, it, it does seem like that they're, they're struggling more with it than other populations might for a number of different reasons. One thing is that immigrant workers tend to be a much bigger part of the what we call essential workers. Uh, <laughs> in some ways, one of the blessings has been that we as a nation have, are recognizing how the, the work of immigrants is so essential. And that means, you know, like the front lines. Do you think that's, do you think that's true? Like, will that last after this? Or are we going to go back to maybe not valuing their work as much as we should? You know, that's, I mean, that's, I have no idea, of course, but um, I I hope so. I hope that there is that, um, that this is a a transition point for recognizing the value of their work like never before. Uh, It's always perplexed me, for example, when the Trump administration talks about the how great the economy is uh, and the low unemployment rate. And then at the same time says that uh, undocumented immigrants are taking away Americans' jobs. Uh, It doesn't seem to, uh, both of them can't be true, (laughs) you know? So, um, so anyway, so I, I hope. So what are some of the specific jobs? The the specific jobs? Yeah. So definitely uh, we, we think about the, Farm workers. There's, uh, according to the New York Times, as many as half of uh, farm workers are undocumented immigrants. Right. Um, and uh, if you don't know what they do on farms, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you definitely, we definitely depend on this. Like this is one of, you know, and Maslow's uh, triangle of hierarchy of needs. You know, food is in there. You know, so we definitely need that. That's definitely essential for us. Um, then, uh, and at the same time, in healthcare, there's a there's an overwhelming number of uh, of immigrants who serve in the healthcare fields, and that's um, that's that's across the board. Different legal statuses. I'm using immigrants as uh, as a broad term, um, and uh, I'm an immigrant myself. And uh, the but there's you know DACA recipients are part of the, well, uh, make up a big part of the healthcare field, and those are people that are still going to work. So then there's other immigrants that are sh- struggling mightily with this because they can't go to work. So uh, in the, the reason why they came to this country to begin with was, was to work. They came here to provide for their families and now they're here and some of them can't go to work anymore and they're, they're struggling with that. So um, that's going to have consequences for months to come, if not years. Uh, yeah, JD, I'm interested in in that particular aspect. Uh, for example, like my parents, uh, my dad has two jobs right now. He immigrated here um, undocumented when he was 15. Um, and then he's just always had kind of two jobs and worked really hard. Um, and especially now he's only allowed to go to one of those jobs. Um, and we do get government help because he's a citizen now. But I'm just wondering about what do those pe- people who are undocumented, what options do they have? They don't have the um, relief of a stimulus bill that a lot of us do get. So what can they do? Yeah, the uh, the, the undocumented population in particular is suffering, uh, I think, more than any other uh, group of people that live in this country right now. 
um, because for that very reason, not only do they are they not getting anything back from the stimulus, but they also don't have any health care. So, um, so they're they're in a really tricky position. Um, I interviewed a number of people about it. One woman uh, who lost her job; she's a seamstress, and and she's she's at home and she uh, she's taking care of her kids. And her husband is a was a, is a delivery driver, and he's uh, he's also undocumented, and he's still getting some work, but but a lot a lot less frequently. He doesn't have as many jobs as he did before. So, um, so they're really struggling to to make ends meet. Uh, she's very hopeful about the future and what what's going to happen. And the, sometimes the the faith that I find in in, in interviewing immigrants is, blows me away. To just to, the the recognition uh, and the the trust in God's providence, it's it, it's in it's inspiring. But um, but they they're. Yeah, they don't have very many options. They they either work and to make money, or they don't have any money. That they don't have the the U.S. government isn't providing for them in any way. The other thing that we're really looking at in terms of money is is rent and being able to pay your rent and not getting kicked out of your apartment or your home. And in a lot of states, uh, if not most states, there's a moratorium on on that on evictions. There's a moratorium on evictions. So. Um, but it's not like that money is gone. You still owe that. So when you get to go back to work or when the, uh, when the moratorium on evictions ends, you're going to have to pay three, four, five months rent. And we're talking about a population that lives paycheck to paycheck. I mean, these aren't, these aren't um, people who have 401ks or a huge retirement or like, oh, shoot, you know, I'm not going to be able to take that vacation to Hawaii. This is these, this is a group of people that are, uh, are are figuring out how to pay their bills every month, and uh, and now they're going to be faced with an even more difficult challenge, and they don't have the the government isn't coming in to help them. So, in a certain sense, we're still very much in sort of the beginning phases of how this is going to affect all of us, really. But in particular, uh, the immigrant community. Are there any? Options being considered um, either by government actors or non-government actors about how to provide some relief and assistance to this community. So on the on a federal level, uh, no, not nothing really, uh, and which you might expect from from. Uh, I, I, I don't mean to rag on the administration, but but uh, they certainly have been less than friendly to, toward immigrants uh, over the last three years. Um, so in California, there's there's been a lot. Uh, you might expect that. Just typically, California seems to be a state that's more friendly towards immigrants. So, there, the state government in California is looking for ways to to reach out for to, to reach out to this community and support this community. It's not enough. Uh, there, there, there have been there has been some money that's been allocated to the undocumented population there, but um, but it's you know it, it's it's not the equivalent of what uh, we'll receive as uh, as citizens of the United States. Or what we may have already received, um, the uh, Catholic charities uh, across the country is, is is looking for ways to help immigrant communities right now uh, with rent assistance, uh, utility bill assistance. Uh, the Society of Saint Vincent de Paul is doing the same. There's a lot of our Catholic charities that are really stepping up right now, and that's always <laughs> it's one of the parts about being Catholic that I'm proud of is when we really uh, step up to the plate uh, with situations like this and uh, the church is doing that but 
but we can only do so much with the re- resources that we have. So at the same time that we're going through this and a lot of the our benefactors are are going through the same thing. The church is asking for, <laughs> the church is asking for them to give more, or we, we actually need more money because there's more need there. So it's it's a that that's complicated. Um, the uh, I guess the other thing to to take into consideration there is um, is is just that they that there isn't that ability to. Uh, for that, for them to work to provide for for themselves, so they, so they they are in this you know caught in between, um, not being able to work and not being able to pay, pay their bills and not having the government uh, step up to help them. The um, not to go on too long on this, but the I, I think it's important to recognize that undocumented immigrants do pay taxes and uh, they they have numbers. Uh, their their ITIN numbers that are given by the federal government that allow them to file their taxes every year. And so the government has a way for undocumented immigrants to pay taxes, but there's no way for uh, for undocumented immigrants to collect uh, on that. It isn't like they have social security or something like that. So um, in a situation like this, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, that what undocumented immigrants and all immigrants bring to this country is much more than what they take away. So we've been talking so far about immigrants who are, are already in the United States um, and able to work or not. Um, but another uh, community that you've been covering are those who are at the border, asylum seekers who are kind of stuck in limbo, either on the Mexico side or in detention centers in the United States. Um, what have you been hearing from from those communities, I imagine it's you know it seems like they'd be a pretty vulnerable population. It's it's difficult to socially distance when you're when you're detained. Um, so what what are we seeing at the border? Because you're you're uh, you're not in New York with us. You're you're in Arizona, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and and you know before the pandemic, it was it was a disaster on the border. So it's only gotten worse now because uh, we we had. Uh, an influx of uh, for for the last several years, we've had an influx of immigrants from Central America that are are they're fleeing very real danger there, and uh, so that's pushing them north, um, and uh, and that's that the da- things haven't <laughs> things are even worse now in uh, Central America than they were before. So people continue to come. However, there isn't any way for them to come through the border legally or to ask for asylum that's been uh, essentially shut down so um, so more and more people are, are because of the virus there have been even more stringent restrictions on asylum seeking yeah Is that what you're saying? exactly that that's right and, or the, the uh, we're, we're currently not uh, allowing people to to seek asylum so the before there was a process in place where we would limit the number of asylum cases we would take. Uh, because of uh, backlogs in the uh, asylum cases uh, n- nationwide, um, and uh, but now it's 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 essentially stopped. Um, so so they have no nowhere to go. If uh, you know if you think about the Remain in Mexico policy, the idea behind that was that if you went to ask for asylum at the border, you'd get like a, a date and time, uh, or you'd get the promise of a date and time to come back, so that you could make your asylum. Uh, case and you'd wait in Mexico. Um, the uh, 
Migrant Protection Protocol, I think is what it was called officially, but um, also known as the Remain in Mexico policy. So now the people who have dates, the, those dates have been canceled. So they're basically in the state of, uh, and, um, the state of limbo maybe gets overused too much here, but uh, but they're they're sitting, hanging out on the border, waiting for their cases to be heard. And these are people that are coming to have their cases heard for asylum in a legal way. I mean, this is part. This is a legal way to enter the country, and uh, it's just simply not an option right now. Yeah, and I know that can be difficult for for the people who are kind of experiencing that, like the uncertainty. I think that we're all facing. Um, I want to pivot a little bit, JD, to um, kind of like a more personal question. I think uh, when I think about or read the news about like people who are undocumented or asylum seekers, I think it's really difficult for for me to read that news because it is like I do come from a family of people who were once undocumented or still are, and I see that that that's just really hard to to see their pain and know that my family had suffered something similar. But I'm wondering, as a journalist when you report on a community that maybe like feels personal, how, like, how kind of do you deal with that? How do you retain a sense of balance to being faithful to reporting, but also maybe feeling what that community is feeling? Yeah. You know, the first thing that I do is that as a journalist is try to understand the other, uh, whether it's the person that I'm interviewing that I, um, that I, I mean, I have more sympathy for, or if it's the person that I have more of an issue with because of my own beliefs. Uh, so I think that that's for me. The first step is to to try to understand where the other person is coming from. Um, the it, with the immigration issue, this is something that we've been dealing with as a as a nation. I mean, it's maybe throughout the history of the United States uh, as a nation of immigrants, but. Uh, but you know, even in the last twenty years, it feels like it's been more and more of an issue that uh, that it's that we're more concerned with, and it's more politically divisive than it's ever been before. Um, but I mean, it, it started even during the the Clinton administration with some of the policies, uh, anti-immigrant policies from the Clinton administration. So it's not even necessarily a Republican or Democrat uh, issue. Um, so. So I do the 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 struggle that I have is uh, more to do with uh, with balance and trying not to insert my opinion in any of the articles that I write. Now the the questions that I ask obviously will reveal something about me um, and the maybe the answers that I get. But um, I really, as much as possible, try to allow the stories to to be a place where the the voiceless can speak. Right. So. Um, so I'm asking, always, always want to include the undocumented immigrant, him or herself, in the piece so that they have a chance to speak and even, you know, identify themselves if they so choose by first and last name. Um, that's very courageous uh, for for them to do. Um, the I also know, I mean, I have friends that that are, uh, you know, they paint houses or they work in more uh, manual labor type fields and they they'll tell me that they lost their jobs or are getting paid less because there are immigrants here so there's um that's also to to try to understand where people come from that are uh that have anti-immigrant sentiments i think is also really important as a as a journalist and especially as a catholic journalist to try to see also the suffering that's there from people who who feel like their lives are worse because immigrants are here. So um, to be true to that too, uh, I think it's important. So 
um, it's, it's, it's a challenge, but I mean, I, for me, like in journalism, I think that there's a deep spiritual spirituality to it in terms of like checking my own ego before I go into an interview. And, uh, um, and I don't know, I, I certainly don't always succeed at that, but that's always the goal is to, to try to come into it, um, and, uh, and let the people speak to me and, and really have that genuine concern to understand where they're coming from. Uh, Ashley mentioned earlier that you're based in Arizona, um, whereas most of the America staff is here in New York, uh, with a couple of exceptions. Um, I'm wondering, uh, why do you not to... It sounds like I'm making you make a case for your job, but that's not really what I want to ask. But <laughs> why do you think it's important for for us to have someone um, on the West Coast uh, reporting on the church and issues there? Yeah, I uh, I think that the the church in the United States is you know it's growing very much in I mean across the country, but it's definitely growing in the Southwest. So we have situations in our diocese where we're opening up churches, we're building schools. Um, they're trying to figure out, uh, for years, they've been trying to figure out how to get a Catholic university in Arizona, and they have some, like Benedictine University, and we actually had a, a feature about that um, earlier this year. But um, but anyway- But that in itself is like a story that we don't, that's of growth and opening instead of closing and, and shrinking. That That's a totally different perspective than when we typically hear on the East Coast. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to say it so directly, but it, that, that's what <laughs> I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there is, there, there's a lot of growth here. Uh, and it's not just because the immigrants are coming here, but there's a, there's a bunch of people from Chicago that live in Arizona, you know? So we have the people migrating from the Midwest. Um, you should see what it's like at a Cubs game uh, here. <laughs> or, I mean, I guess other people call it a Diamondbacks game, but I mean, th- there are just so many people that are that have moved here because of the weather and because the, um, uh, and, and in some cases in the Southwest, like it's a lot easier to own a home. So anyway, yeah, I think it's a completely different perspective in the, in the same way that like I'm, I'm personally have a hard time using uh, kind of umbrella terms like Latino or Hispanic uh, because it's, it's such a more complex reality. Even we as, uh, as Americans or citizens of the United States or whatever, uh, we, we're not, monolithic either right i mean we're so so anyway so i think that that the diversity of the church is served by having uh, correspondence in different parts of the country like here and mike in chicago um obviously there's a reason to have jerry in rome but um i think that helps give a a fuller picture of uh, who we are as uh, as a church yeah jd i really that i appreciate that so much about your reporting uh, when you said that i remembered oh back in march you did like a piece on like latinos who support trump um and you know you just paint a very nuanced picture of of that community um and i'm wondering so are there any is there any nuance that we're missing in terms of like how how the um coronavirus is Im- impacting the immigrant community are there are there things you would want to add to complicate the picture a little bit? Yeah. Most of the immigrants that I speak with really want to go back to work. Uh, there isn't a, uh, I think that we often uh, in this country and, and sometimes regrettably in the church uh, see things in terms of this left or right or political type terms. Um, but the, this, this, and in general, this is a people that came to this country to work. So they're very anxious to get back to it. Um, they're mo- for the most part that, I mean, that, uh, they're not coming here for a handout. So <laughs> that's not what they're looking for. What they want most of all is to get back to work. And so it's 
in some ways, like I, I think a lot of Americans can relate to that right now. Um, I think that there's that that tension between safety and uh, physical safety and economic safety that's playing out right now in a lot of our debates, um, and even people who uh, are opposed to wearing masks and other people that you know have to wear the masks. Uh, you have to wear the mask, or else even in your car or whatever. Um, so there, there is that tension going on, and that also exists in the immigrant community. They don't have that, uh, in some sense, today, social distancing is a privilege. It's for the privileged class uh, to be able to social distance, and that's not this group of people. Um, they, uh, if, if they social distance, they're, they're not going to have any money. So, um, so yeah, so I... I being patient and uh, and trying to move forward out of this, that that tension, I think that a lot of people are feeling uh, about wanting to move to the next step and wanting to um, to get back to work is something that's definitely exists in the immigrant community, and I think makes them very much akin to a lot of Americans right now that are frustrated with um, with not being able to do that. JD, I just want to thank you for your reporting for telling uh, these stories. I think that we really need to be made aware of. It's really easy to, um, when we're kind of in our own pain and our own suffering, it's really easy to forget the suffering of others. And I think you do us a great service by um, continuing to tell these stories. Um, but before we let you go, uh, we do have one, one final question for you. Um, if you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? You know, I... If I can just say, I love that you guys asked this question uh, because as a as a Catholic, I find it so. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to talk to your non-Catholic friends about saints and what are the saints about anyway. So um, ever since I started listening to Jesuitical, like I've been uh, even before I have had the blessing to work with you guys. Like, oh wow, what if I was ever on Jesuitical and I got asked this question, who would I pick? Uh, I mean, that's the truth. I'm not- Now's the time. <laughs> yeah, right. So I've had a long time to think about it. So let me go through my li- <laughs> So let me go through my list. Uh, <laughs> Your litany of litany Yeah, of here's my litany. Um, no, but I'll just say um, I I think it, it, considering the topic, you know, uh, I I thought well, I should pick an immigrant, but uh, but I'm not. I'm going to pick a, a Pat Kruska, who was, she was my, uh, in confirmation, when I went through confirmation uh, here in Arizona um, at my parish, she was the leader of the Catholic, uh, of the confirmation process. And uh, she was just, uh, she continues to be a treasurer. She's, uh, she's 80 now, and she continues to work in youth ministry at a dif- different parish. But um, she really inspired me um, to be a more faithful uh, Catholic and to live out the, the fullness of my Catholic faith. And, um, and she has that look about her. I don't know if you know, I mean, I'm sure you do. You've met these people that when they look at you, um, you just can see something in their eyes. It's just, it's, it's like, you feel like God uh, is looking at you when they look at you. And she has that look about her um, of just um, love and, um, and then also, not just like, oh, everything's okay, but oh, you're Catholic, you have to do something about it, you know? Uh, so it was both love and challenge. And um, and she did that, and she continues to do that despite having really debilitating pain in her legs. She has the uh, she ongoing um, health issues. And so she's in real pain, and she's always smiling, and she's always 
there to listen. And uh, she has those shining eyes of God. Um, and so, yeah, if I, if, if I were to pick one person, it would be Pat, Pat Kriska. Well, St. Pat. St. Pat. I like that a lot. I mean, how many, how many women like that are just like holding up the church in parishes and passing it on to the next generation around the country? So I thought that's really beautiful. JD. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can people follow your work? This is an, e- this is an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, at JD Long Garcia. Awesome. So uh, americamagazine.org is where all of my uh, articles are posted and my father reads every single one of them. Um, so, <laughs> so I get commentary awesome. from him all the time. Yeah. Well, you can join the great company of JD's dad at americamag.org. Uh, JD, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, JD. Thank you.